So today on the Jewish calendar is the 22nd day of the month of Shvat. Now, of course, you are sitting there in your seats all over the country, all over the state and wondering what is the importance of this date? Why do I choose to mention it today? And, um, and, and so let me tell you. In 1988, on the 22nd day of the month of Shvat, and the, the secular date I should have prepared in advance, but I didn't, so I won't tell it to you. I won't make one up, that's for sure. Um, the Rebbe's wife passed away. Okay, so the Rebbe's wife passed away on this 22nd day of Shvat in 1988. Keep in mind, now let's, let's put some historical context to this. The Rebbe was married once, got married in 1927 at the age of 26. His wife was at the time, I, if I recall correctly, 27. I'm pretty sure about that. And they were married. Um, what's the math? 20, 1927 through 1988, anyone? Mathematics? 61, 61 years. 61 years. So that's a 61-year-long um, marriage. And days after their anniversary, so Kislev Tebe Shvat, two months later, the Rebetzin falls ill. Um, the Rebbe's wife is called Rebetzin. It's the uh, it's it's a Yiddish term for Mrs. Rabbi or something like that. And um, and uh, she falls ill, and within kind of it's like very quick. You know, she had been ill, but she hadn't been like deathly sick, and she passes away, um, and it comes as a major shock to the Rebbe. And um, it has a lot of repercussions in the way the Rebbe continues his, his, his leadership of the movement. And I'm going to tell you a couple of examples. So one thing that the Rebbe had started to do in 1965 was that every time he spoke at a, um, at a Fabringen, which was leading a, it's more like what we would call, in one way you could call it a lecture, in another way it's a Hasidic gathering in a lot, with a lot of conversation and song. And that was the, the ultimate place where the Rebbe did all of his communication, or I would should say better, most of his communication. So when I told you guys that the Rebbe has 11,000 recorded hours of speech, most of that, probably the lion's share, maybe even 80, 80 to 90% of it happened at, um, at Farbringen. And the English spelling of Farbringen is F-A-R-B-R-E-N-G-E-N, Farbringen. And um, it means in English, hanging out together, getting together. It doesn't have any like a, um, you know, in other communities where they speak Yiddish as a language, they say Fabringen and they mean, let's go hang out, right? Let's go to the pub, let's go to the bar, we'll have a Fabringen. For, for some groups, it means one thing, and for another group, it means something else entirely. In Chabad, um, it's this gathering where there's a leader who shares his knowledge with everybody and kind of demands self-development and progress in response. Uh, so in ninth, so the Rebbe would bring minimum, minimum of once a month on the week proceed the Shabbos that precedes the beginning of the new month, the new Jewish month. 
that's Rosh Chodesh, the, the, the Shabbos that precedes Rosh Chodesh, which, by the way, is tomorrow. This Shabbos is the Shabbos that precedes Rosh Chodesh. Um, Rosh Chodesh, this week, will, this month will be, I think, on Shabbos. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's true. This com- the Shabbos that follows this one will be the, the beginning of the new month of Adar. So the um, the just a moment. So the the Rebbe initiates this effort to discuss a Rashi a week. Every time the Rebbe speaks, he would discuss a comment of Rashi on the current parsha. And so you know, I've showed you my favorite chumash on multiple occasions, um, and and. This it's this is unique because it includes a lot of the Rebbe's comments on Rashi, and it's it's done quite well. Um, but when the Rebbeson passed away, the Rebbe stopped to talk Rashi's. The Rebbe stopped to discuss these Rashi's. So it's an in, so I mean you could call it coincidence, but it's a deliberate choice, and um, I can't explain it. But I can't tell. I can't tell you that is something that happened. So, another thing that happened is that the Rebbe had made an active effort to discuss a, a certain comment on the Zohar. The Zohar is one of the fundamental works of Kabbalah, and the Rebbe would discuss a Zohar every time he brings on Shabbos as well. And that lasted not as long as the Rashi's, but it started a bit later on maybe in the mid-70s, and it ended the same time. Um, was there anything else? There might have been other changes as well. One thing for certain is that it was, it was evident, one could see on the Rebbe that losing his wife had taken an extreme toll on him. So much so that the Rebbe, immediately after his wife passed away, one of the first halachic questions that he asked from a from a high level rabbi was the question: Does he still count as a son-in-law of his father-in-law? So, guys, let's let's think about this. I'm married, right? Which I'm not going to talk about myself, right? Someone's married. And their their spouse passes away, God forbid, right? They're still friends with the family, but are they legally part of the family? It's an important question. If there's if you need a relationship with the family, the Rebbe considers considered his right to leadership of the global Chabad community by virtue of being a son-in-law of his father-in-law. So when his wife passed away, he questioned his right to continue to lead the community. And as such, he needed a rabbi to, um, to investigate the ramifications and to, and to see, to, to properly decide that, um, that, uh, that, uh, that he would be considered a son-in-law. And interesting to note. I think I personally think this is interesting. And the only reason I'm sharing this with you guys is because this is fascinating all to me. And I spent time acquiring this knowledge and I want you guys to have it too. Um, the, 
so the Rebbe asked a rabbi to investigate this, and the rabbi the rabbi understood that the, what the Rebbe wanted. The, the rabbi understood that the Rebbe wanted an answer of, yes, you are still a son-in-law. And so this rabbi, you know, did some quick review in his mind of some basic uh, basic stuff and said, yes, here's, you know, here's the proof. You know, and he, he, he dropped some information. Yeah. Um, the comparison would be if you know, you know, a, uh, um, there's a couple of us who are uh, computer geeks, say it that way, right? If you know a specific language, you can drop a bunch of, a bunch of code and just make something work and it just works, right? But if you want to make something like solid and complete and and never fail, you have to cover all bases. So the Rebbe says to this to this rabbi, he says that was that was a basic answer. That works, but I want you to investigate it properly and come back with a complete solution to this question. Uh, and of course, the rabbi did come back with the same answer, just with more with more backup uh, proof for that. Okay, uh, what happened um, now? All of that said, that was all with regard to the Rebbe's mother, which the Rebbe's wife, which I wanted to share with you. And now um, let's take a moment to talk about the Parsha of the week. How does that sound? You guys open to that? Okay. We are open to that. All right, Mal is definitely open to it. I love that. So this week's Parsha is called Yisroi. Now, um, um, Yisroi, the Pasha is named after someone who's, who isn't Jewish. Pasha is named after a man, a father-in-law of Moses. And for some reason, he's earned a position in the Torah. He's earned a, a Pasha with a name with, that's named after him. And the question that I discussed this week with a bunch of rural Georgians is how come how did how did um how did Yisroi earn a parsha? Nobody named the parsha after me, right? There's no parsha called Chaim, and there's no parsha called Moshe. There isn't even a parsha named after the high priest Aaron. There's no parsha called Aaron. So why is there a parsha named Moshe? Uh, Yisroi. Interesting question. Robert, go for it. Well, I mean, what I was taught is that the the parashiot are named or titled after the first non-trivial word in the first verse, so that um, yitro is the first word of some import in in the first verse, and and when one looks at all of the other portions, it's sort of the first, you know, significant yeah significant word. Okay. 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 I, I can't. Uh, um, okay. All right. So hold on. Hold, um, yes. And yes. And more. Let's just hop over to our favorite online library. Just for a moment. Let's get the right website going over here. Um, so far. Okay. So everyone, we all, we've all seen already once the Safaria website. An amazing, awesome online library. Um, the translations I can't always vouch for. Um, ask me privately, but but it's it's out here. Okay. Anyway, I want to show you something from this from the parish of the week. I'm going. I'm showing, putting it on the screen because not everybody has a chumash. So let's take a look. Here's the website. 
we're going to um, here, we're going to Tanakh, and we're going to go to Exodus, Devarim, going to um, Parsha Yisroi, section one, and here you go. By Yishmai Yisroi. Yisroi here is, okay, on the commentaries, I'm looking for the commentary, where's Rashi? They didn't put him there. Commentary, Rashi. Okay. Um, so, here's the Pasuk. Here's the commentary, and it's called Rashi. Rashi is the first comment, the first, um, the, the most basic explainer of any Jewish uh, biblical text. Um, he writes at the beginning of his explanation that everything he says on the Torah is written, directed towards a five-year-old. A five-year-old learning Chumash for the first time in his life needs Rashi to understand what's going on. And um, of course, there's a lot of depth in the things that Rashi says. And so what you'll, so a lot of what the, the Rebbe says, these kind of questions, he says these, um, he, the Rebbe sometimes asks questions like, why does a five-year-old need to know this? Or this is such basic information how come Rashi didn't comment on it? There must be something that I'm missing in understanding, and that's usually a, a beginning question. Anyway, come right here. The comment of Rashi on the on Vayishma Yisrael. He says Yisrael. He was called by seven names: Ruel, Jethro, Choybov, Chever, Keni, and Putiel. He was called Yeser from the word Yiter to to add because he added it was through him that there was added a section of the Torah. Okay, so that's the piece that I wanted to show you guys. The um, the parsha of the week is named after Yisroi. I blocked it off before you guys finished looking. I'm sorry. Catch it inside your chumash for the rest. Yes, the parsha of the week is called after this guy. Why does this guy get a? Why does this guy get a parsha? I don't know, but what I do know is he's named. After he's named because he got the um because he got a position in the Torah. He has seven names, seven names that he gets all over the place from different activities. And if you continue reading that Rashi, it'll explain each name. Um, but the name Yisrael is given to him because he because he earned another part in the Torah. Fine. We as you might have noticed. As you might notice throughout your reading of the first and second um, section, Aliyos, the second Aliyah is that Yisrael comes and he tells Moshe, "Why do you, why do you judge the people alone? You should, um, you should incorporate more judges into the, into the group, so that everybody gets a chance, and so that everybody gets attention, so that uh, everybody gets, um, everybody can have their things. Why should you do it alone?" And I guess what you could call that, you could, you could, you could credit to Yisroi the the first moments of delegation in Jewish history. Moshe, Moshe is being told, give give over the positions. Okay. Nevertheless, my question still remains: Why do we name a parsha after him? Why is he so focal? And Professor Blumenthal's comments about um, the name of the parsha just being the first word of importance needs to be dealt with. And so I'm going to say like this. It is. It may be true that the name of the Pasha comes from that. 
the first thing that happens, the first sign of what the content is. But the fact that we, all of us as a global community, every Jewish person in the world uses this name as a description, as the name of the Parsha tells you and I that there's value in the name too. Because nothing in this world goes unexplained and un, and doesn't carry weight. Everything that happens has importance. Now, I will add weight to Professor Blumenthal's point. I'm going to add weight to it. Something that you knew or you did not know is that um, where, do, where do our parshas get their names from? Well, sometime in medieval history, someone in the church chose names and chapters and verse numbers for the entire Torah and probably also did chapters and verse numbers for the rest of the, the Tanakh, for the Nach, which is the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Kesuvim, the writings. Um, and so, so that really adds weight to Professor Blumenthal's question or answer. And nevertheless, I stand behind what I just told you, that since we all use it, there's value in it, and it's got to be it's got to be dissected and it's got to be studied. Now, I'm not giving you any um, rabbinic permission to go ahead and study the New Testament. I'm not giving you that permission. Just because other people study it doesn't mean you should. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that you've got to find we find value in the name of the parsha, even though it came from some kind of unholy source based on this. Uh, I call it, you could call it a lore that I have received from my teachers. Um, let's see. <clears throat> Guess what, guys? No three cups of tea today, just a regular bottle, bottle of water. And so we move forward. Why does Yisroi deserve a pasha of his own? Well, what is the focal moment in this week's parsha? that's the most important thing that could have happened in this week's parsha? I am going to give you, um, everyone but Alan can give it, go for a guess, because Alan should know already. If he doesn't, he's in trouble. That's why I'm quiet. <laughs> you, by the way, you do get points for being one of the greater participants, more of an active participant. I've been, I've been, I've been taking notes. Don't worry. Okay, so who can find for us a focal event that happens in this week's Parsha? Five, four, three. Okay, Juan and Professor are both ready to go. Who else wants to, who else wants to give a comment over here? Okay. Okay, go, Juan. Take it away. It's the revelation of the Torah. And Jitro uh, decided to, to be uh, Jewish. Uh, okay, those are, very, those are two good focal moments. Professor Blumenthal, what were you going to say? Yeah, the, the, the giving of the Ten Commandments. Okay, and, and was, um, was Professor Blumenthal's wife going to give a comment too? 
Linda? No? Okay. All right. Mal, did you want to get, participate in some way over there? I'm not sure no, if no. I saw you raise your hand. Okay. So, yes, the answer I was looking for personally was that um, that um, the Ten Commandments are given. However, Juan's second comment that Yisrael converts is just as important. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. So, my friends, um, what happens in this week's Parsha? Hashem gives us the Ten Commandments and turns us into a nation. Um, if you're looking for a moment where God turns us into a nation, um, where did I just see the title in this book a second ago? Um, it should say here somewhere about Ten Mamleches Koyan in Begoy Kodesh. I'm just trying to, maybe it's not here though. No. Maybe I didn't see it here. Hmm. Oh, the chosen people. What does it say over here? Yeah. Verse 6. Let's see. Verse 6, chapter 19. For those who have a chumash. Are there enough people that don't have a chumash that I should put it up online? Alan and Mal, do you guys have a chumash or should I upload it? You can upload it, please. I'll upload it right here. So I said chapter 19, right? Chapter 19, verse 6. Okay, verse 6. Um, the Jews become a nation. Right here, verse 6. But you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's at this moment, um, read the previous verse too. Now then, if you will obey me, if you will obey me faithfully and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure possession among all the peoples. Indeed, all the earth is mine. Um, Alan, did we talk about that pasuk? I don't think so. Alan wants to say something. You're on mute. I can't hear you. Unless you're not talking to us. <laughs> I'm sorry. So I'm looking at... Um... I didn't share the page. I know. I'm looking at my my version of Safari here. Okay, good uh, Exodus, Exodus 18, Exodus 11. 19. I mean, oh, yeah. You're 18. pointing out a different one. Okay, let me just share this for the the for um, okay. for now, so that he can experience it too. That wouldn't be nice if I didn't um, share. Okay, so now you could see Mal. You can get the possible. We read we read five and six. Okay, and now. Um, Alan, you were telling me something in 18, which? 1811. 1811. I love Actually, this. 10 and 11. Okay, I'm taking a look. 10 and 11. Okay, I'm taking a look. 10 and 11. Yes, okay, I'm with you. And actually, 12 as well, but. Got me going over Sorry, I'm I'm back. Go for it. So at this point, uh, Jethro 
uh, in talking to Moses, learns about what happened with the Egyptians and decides yeah. that that God is greater than all the gods that he was so used to in the past. And then in 12, where he brings a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. So at this point, he has converted from his uh, idol worshiping ways to um, Moses and the Israelites. Yes. Yes. So that's, to me, that's the significant part of this is it's a big deal. It, it wasn't so much for all the people that actually saw all this happen. This is someone who is outside of the event who is converted. Yes. Yes. Strong, strong. We, that's, that's where, that's where, our conversation is headed. So you are preempting me, which is good too. Okay, so what, what, what have we said? We've said um, that the Parsha enters into, the Parsha starts with the story and then it goes straight into giving of the 12 commandments. What happens, the 10 commandments, excuse me, um, what happens with the 10 commandments and then as well, God making us into a nation, God appoints us as Kohanim, and a go kadosh, mamleches koyanim, and a go kadosh. What happens in those words? God gives us, and this is, and 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 uh, this is where you guys are now going to become elitists. This is the this is the point right here. Catch catch my drift, okay? In these words, God says to the Jewish people, "You have a responsibility to the world." What's a kohen? A kohen is not just it's not just a genealogy that this guy is a priest. No, a Kohen is a responsibility to serve God, right? Um, we say, in, a, we say in, in the lexicon, there's a word called yichos. Yichos is, is the Jewish term for your lineage, right? When you're from a famous family, for example, Professor Blumenthal's kids are always going to be saying, well, my dad's the, the, the head, the chair of mathematics at uh, at." Georgia College, right? Did I get that right? I got that right. Okay, so that's forever the yichis. There's, there's, there's the lineage, right? I personally tell, I mean, I don't, I don't, uh, you know, I don't publish it all over the town, but like I'm proud of my lineage, my grandfather, my grandmother, my, my uncles, my aunts, they've all done important things and I carry it around like a badge of honor. The Jewish people are given a certain badge, but the badge is not, um, the badge isn't just uh, pride, it's responsibility. The Jewish people as a nation have a responsibility to be light unto the world, to be the priests of God for the world. So if you've ever wondered why, why a Jews get onto all the Nobel Prize lists, it's because they take this responsibility to heart. If you ever notice why a Jew might be like, like, like um uh, not influenced at all by public impression. He just does his thing, right? Go to Borough Park or Williamsburg in New York. You can see these Jews that haven't haven't slowed down one step. In fact, they've increased their efforts at doing what they do, right? Where do they get that energy from? It's here in the book. In the book, it says, you guys are meant to be lamplighters. You guys are meant to be um, uh, beacons of light to, to, to impress and to influence. Okay, fine. That's what happens when the Jewish people become a nation. The immediate next thing is that God gives us the Ten Commandments. And in giving the Ten Commandments, 
God realizes an ultimate goal that he had in creating the world. What is, what was, what is God's number one interest in creating the world? Anyone, someone, give me an answer. What is God's number one interest in creating the world? The table is open and the answer is not in the book. Uh, it is in the book effectively, but it's, you gotta, you're going to have to guess for this one. Okay. <clears throat> Ten, nine, so, so on, brave. Yes. Scripture, I, I forget. There are lines in scripture. In fact, I think we read them every morning in the morning prayers. God created the world for his glory. Yes. Okay, God created the world for his glory. And what does that mean to you? Like, what do you mean? I've never quite known what that meant. Okay, good, good. That's a, that's a sharp response. He's like, it's not clear enough for me to answer. Okay. Um, it, it's almost circular. I think perhaps God created the world to, so it could be holy in the way that the heavens are, in the way that heaven is to, Bring holy, just as there's holiness above, there should be holiness below. Okay. I love it. I love it. I love it. And this is exactly where I want the conversation to go. This is exactly where I want to go. Why did God create the world? This is going to be the question that every day that you hang out with me, I'm going to ask you the same question. And we're going to talk about the answer. And we're going to do it again and again and again. The conversation never ends because it's a daily experience. Why does Hashem need us? When we talk about Hashem, the God, God of the entire world, created heaven and earth, we talk about an existence that doesn't need anything, right? It doesn't need anything. You and I, we have needs, right? I want to eat dinner. I already ate dinner. But I, you know, I want to eat, right? I want to sleep. I want to have, I want to have uh, the luxuries in life. I want to have uh, all the different gadgets that there are, right? Everybody has their different needs. Some guy wants to travel. Somebody else wants to live on top of a mountain in absolute silence and build his own house. Everybody has their own desires, the things that are important to them, right? But we're all incomplete existences. We're all things, we're all creations that have needs. But God created everything. Heaven and earth are his. What does he need? Okay. Okay, just guys, don't uh, don't drop everything because I asked you such a philosophical question. There's an answer to. Yes, Alan, go for it. Carlos, in a moment. I just, I mean, I, I keep thinking about artists, uh, and actually, even anybody. I mean, in my business, the IT business, um, one of the, the the things that that provided the most joy is producing something creative that actually was sort of physical implement implementation of my creativity to be able to see something that I made. So without, without all of us, I mean, you know, God's glory would be a, a pretty lifeless bunch of planets. Yeah. I think, okay, I think there's joy in, in, in creating uh, and, and seeing the, you know, the result of that, that effort. Good, good, good. I'm going to use some of what you said. I'm going to use something of something from what you just said in my uh, in my future uh, comments. Yeah, Carlos, you wanted to say something. 
yes, I read a Jewish philosophy book by um, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. And one of the main themes in his book was um, that God needs to be sanctified. So he, he looks to humans to sanctify him as well. Uh, so that can be one of okay. the answers to you. I, because I haven't read the book myself, I want to ask you, what do you think it means that God wants to be sanctified? What does that mean to you and to the rest of us? Uh, to, um, to express some of God's holiness in our own lives, um, not expect just someone else to do it or no, no one to do it. Okay. Awesome. Love it. Love it. Do we, do we, yes, add, a, do we add a dimensionality to God by having been created by him and having the universe that is a reflection of him? Do we add a dimensionality to God? In no. other words, God, God, God created the universe and us basically to, as part of his existence, an extension. Yes, yes. And uh, what's, what would be the repercussions of your question? What would be either right or wrong? What would be good or bad? with your question? Well, that I don't know. <laughs> okay, that's awesome. That's awesome and that's fantastic because you're because you're also touching on something really, really, really strong, very strong. Um, what Mal went to, and Alan, I need to come back to what you said and to what Carlos said. What Mal just went to was a comment of, hold a second, is there anything beyond God? Are we separate entities? And of course, the issue of being a separate entity of God is, do we, can we compete with him? You know, um, uh, the fear of robots for us laymen, uh, for, for a guy like Alan, robots are just uh, something to play with. It's like a toy. But for us laymen who have no idea of the power of AI and all the other stuff out there, um, uh, you know, a robot, who knows, could the robots overtake us? Like all the movies that everybody else has watched already? Like, can we lose the world to them? And the same thing, perhaps is God afraid that he created man and now man is going to depose him? Does creation create dimensionality? I'm understanding what Mal just said as does creation of human allow for competition with God? No, I, I don't think That's it's what you're saying. okay. I think it's more a it's sort of like um and I'm I'm going to this from theory since I don't have kids, but the idea that there is a wholeness in family, in in having an extension um that gives more than the sum of the pieces. Not a competition, but an enhancement. And that's the answer to the question. That's the answer to the problem that you, that, that's already the answer to your problem, okay? That was fantastic. That was full circle all by you. Well done. Um, and let's say it like this, does God need us? In a way he does. In a way we enhance him. Alan, I feel like you're agreeing with what we're talking about, Avian. In a way, we do enhance God, in a way. 
it's a complicated way and it's not something that I am confident in my knowledge of. But in a way, yes, by doing what God wants of us, we are giving something back to him. Now, you're, what you're going to say back, the ultimate philosopher is going to respond back. Hey, what do you mean? You're giving something to God? He's complete already. He doesn't need you. And that's a major argument in the world of Kabbalah. It's an extremely <laughs> major argument that I have watched masterful players argue about for, uh, for years already. Well, oh, yes, ma'am. Going back to this, if God, God is everything, God, all of a sudden, you know, it, it, the everything is an entity onto itself, but there is nothing else. Without having the universe, God misses that enhancement, that enrichment of creation and reflection and feedback. You know, it's, it's almost like, would God without a world, without a universe, be a lonely entity because there is nothing else besides God himself. The troubling term, of course, is besides God himself, right? But mm -hmm. that's the, the troubling uh, word. Uh, forgive the... Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we're, not, we're not playing on the nuances over here because we mm -hmm. have to understand major, major topics mm -hmm. in the philosophy mm -hmm. of God. Alan, go for it. And then we're going to come back to the to uh, to the conversation. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to me, and th this is sort of my impression of, and this is probably you know false uh, thinking of well, personality and God so with <laughs> God with personality. In the absence of a world like we have, uh, it would be you know to Mal's point, it would be empty. And I think the word that that keeps coming to mind for me is validation. Our existence is validation for God. That in an empty world, an empty universe, there, there is no validation. But with us, we get to do that. We get to, to, to validate God's existence. We give back. We're giving back to him an energy that he needs from us. Okay, so I, so number one, Number one, just because I have any intense need to respect the hour, so I'm not, I, I can't continue the conversation. Um, number two, I also don't have enough knowledge to continue the conversation, but I can play just like you all can play, right? We can all have this conversation together because we're humans and we've been, we've been encouraged by God to think about it. So this conversation is actually a very um, Kabbalistic conversation, which we can have. And we can continue to have because it never ends in a way. And as I told you, there are these great minds that are still arguing um, this conversation till this day, and they don't have any conclusions. So we can just play along. Um, okay. All of that said, all of that said, I want, I'd like you guys to shelve that conversation for a moment until, until seven o'clock, at which point you can pick it back up. Um, In creating the world, God makes space for all of us to create what we want to call in Hebrew a dira betachtoinim. We spoke about it two or three weeks ago, and I'm never going to stop talking about it. It's the ultimate purpose is to have a dwelling place for God carved into this world, which means the world as we know it looks ungodly. 
and we need to Godify it. And God invested himself into every part of the world, asking us to reveal what's here. A trademark of Chabad of rural Georgia is revealing godliness all over Georgia. We're not bringing godliness to Georgia because God is here already. But in each of our homes and in each of our existence and in, in each of our uh, lifestyles, we need to reveal how God has been here from day one. So what, why did we name the parasha after Yisrael? Like um, uh, someone, it was either Juan or Alan, pointed out that Yisrael converts. Why does Yisrael convert? Or maybe it was both of you. Why does Yisrael convert? Because Yisrael has come to recognize that Hashem is an ultimate God that he has never experienced. Background knowledge is that Yisrael had been a priest in every known religion for ever since. Yisrael had tried everything. You know, there are young guys who, um, I don't know, maybe like hippie people did it too, you know. They did everything. They tried it all to try find, to try satiate a certain need. And until they found, until they could, you know, um, quench that thirst, they kept on searching. Yisroi had the same search. He went everywhere. He wanted to find peace with who is God and what is God and what does it mean to you and I. And he tried everything. And I don't know names of all the things he tried, so I'm not going to say them. But he did it all. And then suddenly, he comes back to Judaism. He comes to Moshe. Moshe, by the way, is his son-in-law. He comes to the Jewish people, and he says, as the verse that um, Alan asked, Ask us to pay attention to, and it was chapter 18, verses uh, verse 10, 11, and 12. But pay attention specifically to verse 11. He says, Ato your deity. Now I know that God is greater than all of the other, um, all the other gods, and uh, all the other gods without the capital G. Um, like, like you see in this thing that they violate, they did to you. And I'm looking for the word. Where is Aphrodite? Where's the um, key? Where's the word that I was looking for? Okay, I thought it was here. So we read it before. Uh oh, you guys busted me like this. This is it. That's it. Now you're going to have to find me. Where's the Pasuk? Oh, maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. After your deity, God of Hashem, Now I know that that Hashem is greater than all of the other gods. Inverted commas. It's right there. It's chapter eighteen, verse ten. It might even be on the same page. Uh, yeah, no, verse eleven. After your deity, now I know he God of Hashem that Hashem is great. We call him greater than all of the other gods. This is. Yisroi announcing to the greater community and saying, look, world of idolaters, I've done it all. You respect me as knowing what everything is, what everything is all about. And here I am announcing to you, God is greater than all of the other gods. The God of Israel, or whatever, Hashem better use, we should better use, God of Israel is like, it's not the God of them. It is the God of them. It's 
the God of the entire world, heaven and earth, is greater than, is greater than, so, so it's in this point that Yisroi makes by converting, by joining the tribe, he says, I have recognized that everything else is a farce and this is it. What does Yisroi achieve by making that statement to the entire world? Yisroi achieves spreading the word, telling everybody that this is, um, that he, he, he tells everybody this is where it's at. And effectively, that's, uh, call it sanctifying Hashem's name, or you could say this is making a dwelling place for God here. Until Yisroi came, until, until Yisroi converts, there's this long-standing conversation is... Is there only one God? Is he as omnipresent as he, as he claims to be? Can he do it all? And even after this, um, you know, there's even the makos, there's the, uh, the, the, the punishments of the, to the Egyptians, right? Those were quite miraculous. You should have been blown away, right? And then God splits the sea. The entire world should already be bowing um, and, and, uh, and, and recognizing God's presence. But they don't. In fact, Amalek, last week at the end of the parsha, at the end of Bashalach, Amalek comes and attacks the Jewish people as they're leaving, as they're, as they're finishing crossing the sea and entering and entering into the desert on, on part of their, the beginning of their travels. Um, Amalek comes and attacks them. And it's seen as a very fundamental, uh, a fundamental experience in Jewish literature. And uh, uh, Professor, I'm going to push you off till the end if you don't mind. Um, and it's so it's here where when Yisroi comes, and what is Yisroi? He's the embodiment, he is the ultimate of anti-Torah philosophy and spiritualism. He's done everything else, but then he comes and he says, God is greater than all the others. Like that, he's he, Yisroi, you know, puts he puts God's crown on the rest of the world, and he settles that conversation once and for all. And then immediately after Yisrael comes, but uh, yeah, immediately after Yisrael comes, just a couple of weeks later, whatever, it's seven weeks later or so, the Torah is given at Mount Sinai. And, and that happens in this week's passion. And so, and so, okay. So that ends, that ends the, uh, the textbook information that I just shared with you. Now we have to take this information and turn it into something that we can do in our own lives to embody this parsha. Okay, so one thing I could tell you, like I could tell you is, uh, okay, go figure it out. So instead of saying, go figure it out, I'll say, give me some suggestions. And then after you guys give some suggestions of things that you can do that embody the Yisroi style influence, I can make a suggestion of my own as well. L'chaim. And remember, you're not live on Facebook, so you should be brave enough to join, maybe, hopefully. Okay, someone with a comment. Anyone comments? Yes. You're still on mute. We can't hear you yet. Everybody has the same experience, huh? Um, yes. Actually, in the, in the first part of the Parsha, Yetro uh, take uh, his daughter and uh, the most the Moshe 
It's uh, children and, and go with them to the Sinai. The whole thing, he looks like he likes to make sure that, uh, he likes to make sure that uh, everything will be okay for uh, his whole family. And, uh, and they will be part of the, of the, um, all of this. And, uh, and I think this is pretty significant uh, in the way that uh, probably we have to, to think the same way with another people. We have, I think he, he felt the responsibility to, to take uh, his uh, closer people with them um, and put it in the right path. And I think it's, uh, it's our responsibility as well. And many times we fail because, uh, because we have to work, we have to, many, many reasons. And I think we have, we have to reconsider these kind of things. Especially okay. myself, I, I am a workaholic and, and and I think I, I did many things wrong, many things wrong in my life because uh, I work because uh, I have to get money because I have to get many things. And I think it's a um, topic of reflection. Okay, so that's and that's great feedback right there. That's a good a good reaction to the whole conversation is to spend more time emphasis to spend more emphasis and time with one's family. Like Yisri took care of his family, so also we should take care of our own families. And um, on that note, I'd like to suggest that um, that if, uh, if, if you're able to, like if your kids are near you, I don't see, I don't know, I don't know if anybody has their kids near them, um, then you could make a Shabbos together with them. That's a fantastic thing to do. Or since you can't do Zoom on Shabbos because it's, because it's Shabbos. So do a family Zoom once a week and uh, do something together. You know, keep your family together. That's a great idea. I love it. Okay. Um, the professor had something you wanted to tell us. To your question, uh, I had something else, but to your question, um, one of the first thing that, um, that Yitro does after that uh, verse 11 is makes a sacrifice to God, um, which is a, a communication uh, to to God, with God, and, and so in terms of what we can do in our lives to mimic Mitro's behavior is to engage in what is now the, has taken the place of sacrifice, which is prayer. And, and Love it. As we pray, Absolutely. we are doing exactly what Yitro did right after he converted. Love it. That's a great one. So Professor Blumenthal suggests that just we can learn directly from Yisrael how to behave next. Yisrael, immediately following his um, his conversion, brings a sacrifice. And since nowadays we don't have sacrifices, but prayer has replaced sacrifices, so so follow in Yisrael's behavior and do a prayer. I love it. Okay. Anybody else have a suggestion as a takeaway behavior from what we said? Five, four, three, two, one. That was really quick countdown, I know. Okay, one, I'm going to give you a suggestion. Then we'll hear Professor Blumenthal's question. And by the way, um, at seven o'clock on the dot, which it is right now, of course, I'm, I can't hold you back. So if it's fascinating, hang around. But if you're done, thanks for joining us. And I had a great time spending time with all of you. 
and look forward to the next opportunity. Um, and while I say that, a couple of a couple of announcements. Number one is that we have Purim coming up around the corner. Purim is in three weeks or so. Um, if if the Jews of Georgia would be willing to gather in a public uh, event, we would arrange a Megillah reading. However, as of now, we haven't had any interest regarding a gathering of 10 Jewish men together to have a Torah, a Megillah reading for Purim. So that isn't yet scheduled, but it can be scheduled all the way up until, uh, preferably earlier, but it can be scheduled all the way up until the Thursday that precedes um, Purim, which is, as I said, in about three weeks. That's number one. Number two is that there are three other mitzvahs for Purim aside from Megillah. And they are Mishloach um, sending presents of food, man to his friend, Matonis Le'avyoinim, giving presents of, giving financial presents to two poor people, um, and having a su'uda, a meal of celebration. And this year, since Purim is on a Friday, so you should try to have your meal during breakfast. And what that means on a practical level is have a tuna sandwich, have bread um, and kosher fish, kosher, first of all, kosher bread, kosher fish or kosher meat. Um, you probably don't fulfill the need, the, the commandment with cheese, with milchix, with milk products. So try, go for, a fish or meat, and if you're vegetarian, then make sure you at least wash, um, have bread, at least have bread, and probably have some wine too. And those are the those are the simple ways to fulfill the mitzvahs. We will discuss Purim at length in the coming weeks in two special classes um, being planned as we don't as we speak. Might I might I make a suggestion to you? Can we get a list yes. of uh, members uh, who uh, have been vaccinated? Might be okay. easier to people together. Right. So, um, yes, I haven't yet discovered anybody's, I haven't yet discovered people who are brave enough to get out there. But if, if, um, well, we just, if we just got our second vaccine today. So, uh, uh oh, forum would be, would be willing to. Okay. All right. So that's, that's, um, Mal, let's go. If you can pull together a minion, I'll come down with a Megillah to read it for you, even twice. Okay, so that's that's um that's that's the announcements. So as I said, the class is officially over. But I want to give you a takeaway, and then I'm going to field some questions because I know there are. So one takeaway that I have from Yisroi and from all of us is that, as I said earlier, God has given us a kind of mission, the mission of being a lamp, a lamp post, you know, a signpost of the best behavior, what we call a a nation of priests. If we're a nation of priests, so I have a personal responsibility to be a source of, of direction and light to the people around me. And so as you guys, as you guys know, I've dedicated my life and literally I'm like on a, what you would call a life sentence. It's a life position to, to serve the Jews of rural Georgia, right? But I mean, I'm not asking, I don't think that we're asking the same from every person, but rather we're asking that every person dedicate time or 
um, or energy towards the that the the um, the idealistic notion of spreading God's name around the world so that people should know that there is a God and you can pray to God and God listens and hears and loves you. You know, there is a notion amongst other religions that God is scary or dangerous or violent, but um, it's not a Jewish idea in the slightest. So, um, you know, even sharing that basic piece of information to other people, people will find peace in that. And by, and by sharing it, we share light, and by sharing light, we create a environment of goodness and welcomeness that everybody is happy to be a part of. So I bless all of us, every single one of those present, and that is the professor and his wife, and Carlos and Juan and Alan and Mal, my father's not here anymore, and myself, that we should all um, grab the opportunity and see the fruits of our labor in good health and with a lot of happiness Amen. And now the floor is open for questions. Shoot. Okay, I, I do yes. have one. Verse 11 that we've looked at so closely tonight. Okay, hold so, on. Let me turn the page. Okay, verse 11. Yitro indicates quite clearly that he is, um, he knows that Hashem is greater than all the gods. He's He's, he's taken aback. He's, he's, he's blown away by, the, by the, what God does for the, for the Israelites in, 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 in arranging for the Exodus and getting out of Egypt and all the miracles and so on. It's the greatness of God, the power of God, which seems to be what, 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 what turns the tide for him. But I wonder the way this is phrased. Now I know that Hashem is greater than all the gods. He admits God is powerful. <laughs> Is he admitting also that God is one, the only God, or is God simply the greatest of the various gods? Um, so that I think he's part of the way he's admitting God is supreme, God is all-powerful, um, uh, omnipotent, and, and, and probably omniscient, he's admitting, but is he is he taking that step of saying that uh, God is uh, Hashem Echad? That's a good question, and it's a very good question. I'm going to tell you why I think it's a good question. Um, a Jew has a mitzvah. In fact, I think it's one of the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments is to believe that Hashem that there's only one God. Is that a mitzvah for the non-Jew as well? It might be. We have to look in the Rambam, in the seven Noahide laws, what, what it is for the non-Jew. Does he have to believe that there's only one God? Or can he just believe that there is... He doesn't believe that there's one God. You're right. No, no, he does. I'm sure of that now. Okay, so it is a mitzvah for the non-Jew too to recognize that there is just one God. So now, Professor Blumenthal is saying that Yisroi only announces that God is greater than all the others. He doesn't say that nobody else exists. He just, said that, he just says that God is greater than all the others. So uh, what should I tell you? So one thing I'll tell you, and um, no, I'm not going to say that. I don't have an answer. I don't have a good answer for you. It's a really Your, good point. Yeah.
the uh, let's let's work your question. Yeah, does um, does Yisrael's statement really mean that um, that where is verse eleven in this book? Right here. Does Yisroel's question really his does his does his statement really mean that he recognizes that all the other gods are um, are, uh, are are like are real? Just this is the most real, or maybe that's just our understanding of it, and he doesn't really mean to say that. Are you with me? Can I mention something? Yes, go for it. In every time I press my space bar and then go back to Safari, it does weird stuff. Right. So when you're going through the Ten Commandments, the the part where uh, the commandment where God says, "You shall have no other gods before me," even yeah. in that, even in that commandment. Almost like he's identifying this whole other God problem. Um, okay, okay. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't say in the Ten Commandments, it says you have to recognize that there's only um, that there's no other. In a way, he doesn't, he, he, he kind of what you're saying is that he kind of gives a permission. For something else, is that is that your is that did I get you right? Base. You know, I, and I guess you know to me this is sort of the, the, the which possibly you're talking about. Alden, let me just catch you. Um, okay. Are you talking about verse three? I'm talking about verse chapter three. twenty, verse three. Okay, yeah. chapter twenty, verse three says, "Loy yea lecha elikim acherim al panoi." You ma you must not possess. Any and here that the, okay, so the English translation, and I'm using they add this in. And before I tell you what it says, I'm looking in the footnotes to see what their source is to add it in 97 Rashi here. Okay, so Rashi, Rashi. Now it's important that I mention Rashi because Rashi is Rashi A writes with divine inspiration, and B is the old. Um, all hands down, classic and accepted explainer of the text. So let's just um, for the for everybody's entertainment, let me uh, share the pasuk. How do I share it here? Pasuk. I'm going to put it this one, and that, by the way, is the answer to is your question. Also, not uh, duplicate. Okay, close that. Thank God for fast internet. How long would you guys be waiting if it was dial-up, huh? Okay. Vu Haltman. Chav. Chav. Here. Base. Gimul. Here's the Pasuk. You can see it right here. Loi yeh l'cho You shall have no other gods besides me. So Alan made a very good uh, study. Alan said, what do you mean? That very sentence means... Um, that there are other gods. 
So we are, so let's look at Rashi before we understand the terms. Let's check with Rashi how to understand the sentence. Okay, and we're going to read over here. This is Rashi's comment. It says, "There shall be there shall and I yeah there shall not be unto thee other gods." What I want to do is get the Rashi in Hebrew and in English at the same time. Uh, okay, Hebrew. This will be Hebrew. Okay, why does it have to say lo yelcha? Because the Pasuk already says, don't make for yourself. Why is this said, this verse? Does it not the preceding verse say, I and no other shall be thy God? I am the Lord, I am your God. Which means, I am, so there's nobody else. Why do you have to say nobody else? If it's me, if I'm Chaim Akvitz, Right, so I don't have to repeat myself to say, and nobody else is Chaim Makvitz. I'm the only Chaim Makvitz here. Okay, so the Hebrew sign, Ainli Ela Shaloi Yaaser He Osu Ikvar Minayin Shaloi Yakaim Tamalay Maloi Yelcha. Okay, translation. Since it says immediately the answer is sounds you shall not make unto thee, you shouldn't make for yourself any graven image, etc. So I might say that I have only a prohibition that one may not make such gods. Loi over here, the next verse. It says, Loi don't make for yourselves pestle, any kind of avoid any kind of what does it say? A sculptured image. Um, by the way, just a just as a major tangent to space you all out, um, there is legal halachic issues with people who take up their life with take who take up sculpt sculpture making sculptures they have legal they have halachic issues to deal with which um rabbis can can help them out with i can't because i don't know anything about it but other people can because they have studied this anyway coming back here the pastor already says don't make yourself over there it says don't don't make yourself a um an idol Right, so I might say I only have a provision that one may not make such gods. Whence, from whence means from where could I know that one may not retain an idol that has already been made? Maybe there is no such law. Yeah, therefore it says here you you should not have thou shall not be unto thee. There shall not be unto thee. Through I can't even read these words. Thou shall not have other gods. So. In, so, Alan, and this is what I'm going to for, Rashi is telling us a way to understand the sentence. The sentence doesn't mean you shouldn't have any other gods and they, they exist as gods. It's talking about you shouldn't have any other items that other people call gods, which means, in effect, for example, um, some people... I don't know much about Christianity, but let's say, for sure, Buddhism is like this. People worship the Buddha as a god. So if you have that physical item of a Buddha in your house, it's in violation of commandment two. Don't have that item. I'm pretty sure that's accurate. Um, if you need me to investigate it, let me know. So we take a look at the other Rashi quickly to see if it's of any relevance right now to our conversation. They are not gods, which are not gods. gods, Which are not gods, but others have made them gods over themselves. It would not be correct to explain this to mean gods other than me, for if for it would be blasphemy of the Most High God. Alan, this is exactly what you said, to term them gods together with him. And, okay, another explanation of the Kimacherim, they are so-called because they are 
they are other, they are strange to those who worship them. These cry to them, but they do not answer them. And it is just as though it, it the God, is another stranger to him, to the worshiper, one who has never known him at all. So, so what that means, what the second explanation here meant is um, when a person, you know, a person has a need, they need more money, they need more food, they need a piece at home or something, so they go to their idol. Um, the Medrash tells us that Abraham's father, Abraham Avinu's father, used to sell idols. And people would come in and say, hey, please sell me the idol for peace. And Abraham, Abraham as a child would look at them and say, what do you mean sell you the idol for peace? How can there be an idol for peace man-made? Um, so people would go to the idol and pray to the idol and give me, give me the blessings that I need. But the idol looks back at them, right, as a stranger to the worshiper. Is another, a stranger to him is the worshiper. And that's what another meaning of the word, you should have no other gods. You don't have gods that are others. A god that doesn't respond to you, it's not a good one. You want a God that does respond to you. Okay. Yes, Professor. Alan's point is a good one, and I think your, your citations of Rashi's comments resolve it quite nicely. I think Yitro, however, is not yet off the hook. <laughs> okay. You're saying you're you're going back to um to He says Alan picked up on those other gods in verse three, uh, which you know echoes a bit what we were looking at in, in the previous verse eleven, and I think Rashi has resolved that fairly well. Um, right. But I, I I still have this lingering concern about about Yitro and to what extent he embraces the idea that there are no other gods. Um, okay. So so um, your luck that your that that I am able to read Hebrew. And translate it off off the cuff like this, um, but I will warn you that I found this commentary, and I am aware that that it often is a bit difficult. But on the verse, on the same verse, verse eleven, I pulled up and I shared the screen so you can see it over here. This is from a, a, a someone called the Alshif. Let's just ask quickly Google, ask him who was the Alshif. Let's see if Google knows. Um, Moshe Alshif, Hebrew. He, that's his burial place, um, also spelled Al-Sheikh, 1508 to 1593, known as the Al-Sheikh the Holy One, a prominent rabbi, preacher, and biblical commentator in the latter part of the 16th century. The Al-Sheikh was born in 1508 in the Ottoman Empire and was the son of Chaim Al-Sheikh. And he died in, 19, in 1593 in Safad. And his profession, if you're wondering, he was a rabbi. Okay, I've got a future. And this is a comment of the Alshech on, um, it's a comment of the Alshech on that passage. And I'm going to read it for you. There's no available translation, so you have to rely on me. And if you don't rely on me, I don't know why you joined the class in the beginning, but that's okay. Let's go. Are you ready? We have asked this question. Ki... Ain kefira gedola mizu. There is no blasphemy any greater than this. Okay, so that's exactly what you said. Shiyoyre, he is making the impression. Kigam ha'amim. Even the gods of the nations gedolim heim. They are great. Okay, so Professor Blumenthal, your question is three hundred and something years old. Okay. 
Let's, let's see. Ki im shehashem godel mikulam. If Hashem, the God of Israel, is often called hey. Um, yeah, okay, everyone's still here. Godel mikulam is greater than everybody. Bahaloy asher yamin ki yeshelikami baladei Hashem. Vahaloi, and would it be, would it not be, or would it be, depending on how you read it, Asher, that, Yamin, that you could believe, Ki, that, Yesh, there is, Eloika, a God, Mi Baladei Hashem, aside from Hashem, Koifer, Yikorei, Bli Sofik, that guy would be called blasphemous, straight up. Like, what are you saying? If you believe there's another God, that's out. Vedazal, our rabbis made their name uh, Razal. Mean Razal is a acronym. Each letter, aside from the vav, that vav, but every other one spread stands for another word. Rabbi Seinu, our rabbis, zichroinom, their memories, livracha should be a blessing. Okay, so our sages, they they classified Yisrael to be guilty of this. Shenosan mamish, he gave. Um, I need a good word for this. He gave them, like, he gave uh, concreteness. I, that's not a good word, but nevertheless, it works. But uh, okay, so I, I'm guessing here the Ayn Gimul is, I don't have the exact words, but it refers to the Oived Gilulim. It's it's the idol, the physical idol. Okay, but I'm missing the uh, the words. It's my ignorance that's not helping me here. V'yitochen l'hafech b'schusoi and it could be that we're gonna we're going to um, turn over all of his merit over here. Vuhu kihine om razal. Have you noticed that I'm not as confident right now? Okay, that's okay. We're, we're moving through it. The, our rabbis have told us the following: Shaloi hiniach oived gilulim. The 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 idol worship. Shalo. Ah, I don't know how to say it, but. Hold on, hold on. Just calm me down. Just a moment. Ayn <laughs> Gimel, okay, Ayn Gimel is, go back. Historically, Jews have been always talking about idolaters. We have a lot of conversation about idolaters in our texts, but the printers weren't always Jewish. And the governments who supervised the printing weren't always um, uh um, comfortable with the way Jews refer to idol worship because think about who is one of the greatest, uh, what, what's the greatest religion probably kept by most of the world is Christianity. And their, their very, the very main focus of their worship is to a, is to a, a, a shaped piece of wood. There's an issue with that in Jewish, in, in, in Jewish law, of course, and effectively, any time that a Jew printed something about idolatry, the censors, who were probably usually Christian, would force them to change the term so it excluded Christianity in their Hebrew terms, okay? And so what's the relevance here is often you have these, uh, like you have like this Ayn Gimel, it could be that it was deliberately kept as a acronym so that no one would know, or it was changed out to represent, uh, you know, for other words, to represent idolatry here on an inclusive level. Okay, that's the history, and that's how I know that um, that the Ayn Gimel means idolatry. 
the, the Hebrew words that it represents is oiveid gilulim. Oiveid means to worship, and gilulim means um, rocks, I think, or something like that. I have to get the right uh, word for you, but uh, that's the idea. Okay, so, so the Razal told us, and this is based in a Tanchum, a Tanchum is a Medrash, Shiloi hiniach oiveid gilulim, oiveid gilul, I don't know how to pronounce it properly. He didn't leave a idol worship, Shiloi ovda that he didn't serve. From this he knew he knew how, how God, how Hashem distinguished from all the others. And you could say this is a simple meaning of the text. Now I know that Hashem is much greater. He himself alone is great. And so, oh, so what's happening, by the way, is we're interposing um, his thoughts in between the words that he said. Okay, so these are these are the words he said. He said, "After your deity, God Hashem," and then he said, "Mikol ha So, in between those, we're adding we're adding in these words of like, um, this is what he meant to this is what he meant to say while he was saying it. Koloima who God Hashem is great alone. Ve'ach your there. How do I know? How does Yisroi know to say this comment? Uh, from all the other gods, he is from all the other gods that I served. It's from them that I learned that Hashem is greater. I served them all. I found no value in them. Omar Isi Bashem, what did I find in Hashem? boy, that he showed his greatness in it. That is in the, and that's by the way, the continuation of the Pasuk, and it's over here. Um, you see where my mouth is going? My mouth, my mouse is going. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Yes. By the result of their very schemes against the people, that they did to the people, that they, um, that's how, that's how, um, that's how Hashem has shown his greatness over all the other people. Boom. Okay. So, Professor Blumenthal, did you follow that? Yes, I, I think I did. Okay. And how does that, how does that help you with your question? It, it, it tells me the question is still quite open. <laughs> I'm right there with you. The final analysis, um, the commentator, I'll see what you say. He does, it doesn't appear to me that he, that he resolves it one way or the other. Uh, um, okay, let's, let's talk about it. The first way that he, the first option is that the Al-Sheikh says, this guy is still a blasphemer if that's the right pronunciation. He still he still didn't accept it. Even though he accepted it somewhat, he didn't take it on completely because he recognized other gods, right? The other way to say it is that Yisrael is saying, I tried everything else and none of it is real at all. It's all just stones and stuff and it doesn't respond. So it's of no value. But I've seen value and I've seen achievement and I've seen 
um, interactability with with Hashem. So that's the that's the second version, mm-hmm. Professor. Before we go to Alan, what do does that does that the that way helps. I just said it? Does that make it sound different? The way you just phrased it, that helps. Yes. Okay, so I've saved I've saved the the this four thousand year old community of Jews. I've saved them. Okay, <laughs> well, okay. <it's> partially. <laughs> partially. All right. Okay. Good. The important part is that um, we're not suppressing any questions. Yes, Alan. So, so back to the the professor. Is that what I should call you? Well, Robert, I think suits me better. <laughs> okay, Robert. So yeah, this is all. It, it's all very interesting, and uh, you brought up a wonderful question that's been looking at all of this stuff. I keep thinking my, one of my degrees is in psych. Hmm. and political science. So I'm thinking just in terms of the people involved here, if you had thousands of years of idol worship and all of a sudden you saw that there was a new guy in town, right? You wouldn't discard all of your history, the history of your family and all that. What you would say is, I just found a better one. I'm just talking about anything, right? You wouldn't discard, I mean, if you were using toothpaste, a certain brand for 10 years, and someone showed you a new one, you wouldn't say, this is the only toothpaste. You'd say, this is a lot better than one I used to be using. So from a psychological standpoint, it almost makes more sense that that Jethro would not discard history and, and his belief system and replace it what he would probably do is is sort of step up to this new level. Because the other thing you just showed was uh, it almost said the other gods schemes against the people, which sound like to me the gods of Egypt were the ones scheming against the Israelites and lost to the new god in town. So it's interesting stuff, Robert. I mean, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, it's, but it makes sense. It makes sense to me from a person standpoint. You can't ignore the psychology of it. I agree. I would. Um. I want to. Uh. I want to give. I want to empower you guys. <laughs> we just had. We just had a text-based Torah study. Okay. Pretty good. There, there are rabbis who represent the Torah in their unique ways, right out there in the world that will be zooming over the weekend and teaching Torah. And I want to uh, empower you guys to ask the same question and see what responses you get there. I'm not telling anybody to join an, a, a Zoom on Shabbos. I'm not saying that. But if, if it happens by accident that somebody ended up somewhere, but as it happens, uh, while I didn't endorse it in the slightest, but uh, I definitely would like to hear some feedback on this. Okay. I uh, don't get me in trouble though. I don't want to get any like any letters in the mail. What are you sending me? I don't want to get any of that. Okay. All right. We had some good fun together, everybody. Um, the biggest favor that we can all do for each other is to invite more people to join the class. Spread the word with your family and friends that you had a great time. And I look forward to seeing you for sure next Thursday. 
possibly any earlier. Um, and of course, the offer is open to everybody here. And even the guys that have cashed in once already to cash in yet again um, and take me up on a personal Torah study session throughout the week. Um, my calendar fills up, but I'm still here. So good Shabbos. Good Shabbos to Robert and Linda. Good Shabbos to Alan. Good Shabbos to Juan. Good Shabbos to Carlos. Good Shabbos to... Good Shabbos, everybody. Good Shabbos. Good Shabbos, good Shabbos. And au revoir.